Are you looking to become a leader in clean energy and an expert in clean tech? Do you hope to get noticed in the crowd as you pursue a career in this fastly growing industry? You are in the right place. Join Karan Takar as he invites clean energy leaders to share industry developments, highlight clean tech investment opportunities, and shed light on how you can increase your chances of employment in this high-growth sector. We will also discuss the energy transition across key emerging markets like India and explore partnership opportunities for the U.S. private and public sector. After all, this is the Zenergy Podcast. In this episode, we will be speaking with Will Hackman, who's a conservation and climate policy expert with more than a decade of professional experience in U.S. political campaigning, the public policy process, land and marine conservation, and global environmental issue advocacy. We discuss his recent TED Talk on reframing climate conversations and dive into some of the missteps we are seeing when people talk about the importance of climate change today. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Mr. Will Hackman. Thank you, Will, so much for taking the time. It's great to have you on the show. I think a good place to start would be to try and demystify the concept of climate change, which you do a great job of under your alias as a climate explainer. For listeners who may not be completely familiar, can you talk about some of the main causes of climate change and the associated impacts? Yeah, and, and thank you so much for having me on. I, I really appreciate it and looking forward to this conversation. So you mentioned my Climate Explainer Twitter account, which is sort of the, the alias and some things that I'm looking to make sense of when it comes to climate change and environmental news, policy, business action. You know, I've learned quite a bit about climate change policy, both from the international and domestic level, as well as U.S. domestic and international conservation advocacy, which is what I do in my day job, nine to five every day and, and working in political campaigns before that. So I really bring this political public policy lens to climate change now. And I'm trying to make sense of this world that, that is still so hard for, for many people across the country and world to really digest. Mm-hmm. So thinking about what climate change looks like, the biggest causes and sources of climate change, both in the United States and across the world. And I really focus on the United States primarily because that's my area of expertise. You know, I know a lot more about U.S. domestic policy than I do about any other country. So in the United States, greenhouse gas emissions, you know, the climate changing, warming greenhouse gas emissions in the U.S., the number one source of those emissions is the transportation sector at 27%. It was power generation, electricity, for most of the last 150 years or so since the Industrial Revolution. But in 2017, I believe just a few years ago, that changed. And now transportation is number one. Electricity is number two. Heavy industry is three. And then commercial and residential and agriculture are behind those. 
So that's how climate changing greenhouse gas emissions break down in the United States. And it's fairly similar if you look at the international breakdown as well. And if you think about the highest sources of greenhouse gases, that includes carbon dioxide, methane, nitrous oxide, and others, carbon dioxide is the the greatest source by far at around 80% in the United States. And these are all EPA numbers from 2020. Very interesting. Let's get into your TED Talk, which I'm very excited to listen to when it comes out in the next few weeks. It was titled, The Earth Doesn't Care About Us, Reframing Our Climate Conversations. Will, could you please tell us about what some of your observations have been on how climate conversations are framed today? Yes, absolutely. And that was such a great experience being on stage here in DC in front of a couple hundred people doing a TEDx is a life changing experience for so many people. And it was for me, and it was such an incredibly positive experience as well. And, and a lot of hard work. But the title of my talk, as you mentioned, is the earth doesn't care about us. And I really like that framing. It immediately invokes reaction from people and some good, some bad. But the whole point of that framing and really what I get into within the talk is that, yes, we are in a climate crisis. Scientifically speaking, ecosystems are in trouble. Biodiversity is in decline. Oceans are in trouble. Land-based terrestrial systems are in trouble. A million species are going extinct. These are all the things we hear about all the time. New UN reports coming out every year that further shows us the science behind how much we are in a climate crisis. But what is more important to us, I believe, again, putting on my political hat here, putting on my advocacy hat, how you build campaigns, how you talk to people and create those stories. The thing that people really care about is that we are truly in a humanity crisis over the climate crisis in many ways. We want to solve climate change primarily so that we are here in the future. This is about the future sustainability of human civilization. You know, the world is going to be just fine a million years from now. But if we don't take these steps that the Paris Agreement outlines, you know, that the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change tells us that we need to do within the next eight years before 2030, rapid decarbonization over the next 20 to 30 years, then the systems that we rely on won't be there any longer. You know, we are placed, humanity's place within the natural world will be called into question over the next few decades if we don't rapidly decarbonize. So this is about us and our survival as much as it is about the survival of nature. And I draw a couple comparisons between what I'm seeing as sort of the reality of the Paris Agreement negotiations and what we're working towards, you know, clean energy future, clean air, clean water, a clean energy revolution that provides millions of jobs, you know, around the United States and around the world, and sort of the traditional environmental activism that I see a lot as well. And that activism just seems so focused 
on a couple different things. You know, it seems focused on a world is burning narrative. And Advocacy 101 tells you that you have to provide an optimistic vision for people. You have to provide a hopeful future. You have to give them a sense of what they're advocating for. If we solve climate change, what does that look like? But the vast majority of the images that I see in the climate activist space are world on fire images. So a literal image of a world burning. I get that. I get that. And that is a powerful image that really does capture in in more than a thousand words, everything that's happening to natural systems. But when I talk about the earth doesn't care about us, I'm talking about this savior complex that I think we have sort of moved into in climate activism. And I don't think that's helpful because if we view everything we're doing as humanity, as destroying nature, then we create a false separation between humanity and nature. You know, nature on one side, something we need to protect. Humanity on the other side, you know, doing terrible things to nature. It's a zero-sum game. And we're creating this idea that we can save the world. Again, how many times have you heard somebody say that we need to save the world? Well, who are we saving the world from? Ourselves? You know, who are we saving the world for? Are we actually more concerned with saving natural systems than we are with saving society, you know, saving cities and, you know, where people live and future generations? And so, I really think that we need a reframing in our climate conversations, and that's what the TEDx is about, uh, where we're moving away from these savior messages, moving away from these world is burning narratives, giving people a more positive vision of the future that we can build, reminding them of what the Paris Agreement is all about. You know, basic understanding of the Paris Agreement will show you what we can do if we succeed. And everyone I know who is working at the United Nations level and, you know, at higher levels in climate policy within the United States government and and NGOs and other places, they're all hopeful. Time hasn't yet run out on creating that future that we can create together. But I just worry that so many people are convinced that we have already failed we're already doomed. And, you know, let's just throw up our hands. There's nothing we can do. So I'm wondering about like very specific examples on how we can reframe our climate conversations. For example, there's an Obama quote that I recently saw, which said, we are the first generation to experience climate change, but the last generation who can do something about it. And as a young person, because I have so much time left, knock on wood, and ability to focus my work on this issue and engage with a lot of people who similarly are focusing their work on this issue, I'm just curious about approaches or methods that people like us can employ in terms of helping to reframe this conversation? Yeah, absolutely. Well, so a couple things. I think we have to 
remind ourselves what we are working towards. And it is the Paris Agreement, as you mentioned. And the goal of the Paris Agreement is no more than two degrees Celsius increase over pre-industrial levels by the end of the century, by 2100. And currently, we're at 1.1 degrees Celsius increase from the Industrial Revolution. So we're already halfway to two degrees Celsius, but we're not yet at two degrees Celsius. And there are still many things that we can do to achieve the goals of Paris Agreement. So this is what all of our climate policies and all of the climate policies for every country around the world is fitting into. It's this overarching structure of the United Nations climate conferences, the Paris Agreement and other agreements that were passed that update the science on a constant basis, show us how close we're getting to hitting that goal. But we're not yet there. And in the U.S., there are a couple things that we can feel very positive about. And so to your question, how can we reframe our climate conversations? There are many things that we can and should feel optimistic about, even with the changes that have already occurred. There are many things that we need to continue to do over the next 10 years, five years, three years. But, you know, in the United States, we peaked carbon emissions a few years back and we have declined by 17 percent. By 2020, we reduced U.S. domestic total greenhouse gas emissions in the United States 17 percent below our 2005 baseline levels. You know, our goal under the Paris Agreement is a 50 to 52 percent reduction by the end of this decade, by, by 2030. So again, over our baseline year of 2005, we have a long way to go over the next eight years to hit that goal, seven years, really. And there, you know, we could talk about this and the policies and regulations that will get us towards that goal. But we have declined carbon emissions in the United States. And there are positive other signs, you know, with Europe and other places. I mean, the United States was the number one emitter of global greenhouse gas emissions for 150 years. We're still number two. You know, Europe is huge. Europe collectively, huge carbon emitter for almost all of industrial history. And many countries across Europe are declining their emissions as well. You know, the Clean Air Act that the United States passed is the most important and effective environmental policy that any country in the world has ever passed. And we are still doing so many things under the legislative authority of the Clean Air Act. It has cleared and cleaned our skies. It has saved us hundreds of billions, if not trillions of dollars. It has saved hundreds of thousands of lives. The CAFE standards for cars and trucks, which I talked about a moment ago, which helped improve our fuel efficiency, has made all of the cars and trucks that we see on the roads today much more fuel efficient and and producing less air pollution that all of us breathe in on a day-to-day basis. But getting back to the TED Talk, I am primarily not looking to create a message with the earth doesn't care about you and, and the core components of my TED Talk to people who are already true believers. You know, I think there are enough people out there who are rallying the climate activists who already care about climate change. And everything that I just went over, I think, can help restore optimism to climate advocates who may be feeling that eco-grief and climate anxiety and apathy 
And apathy is not good. <laughs> you know, apathy leads to disengagement. It leads to throwing up your hands and saying there's nothing we can do. We have an election coming up this fall. We cannot afford to be apathetic. The people who are out there wanting us to do something about climate change, we cannot afford to let our guard down or be apathetic. We have to remain engaged. And in order to remain engaged, we have to remain optimistic and be able to see those changes that we've already made. But the more concerning group of people for me are the people who don't already care about climate change, who don't see it in their daily lives. And so I, I talk about this poll by the Pew Research Center in mm -hmm. my TED Talk. And last year, the Pew Research Center conducted a poll that showed that only 57% of American adults believed that climate change was affecting their local community. So that is technically a majority, 57%, but it's a very slim majority. And if you break that down by political party, it's only 32% of Republicans and, you know, 78% of Democrats. But to me, that paints a very clear picture that basically half the country does not think that climate change is affecting their local community. And this poll was done last year. You know, we have all seen the wildfires and the floods and the hurricanes and everything else happening, but there are a lot of Americans who still don't rank climate change very high, don't see it in their lives, in their communities. And if half the country can't see what climate change means to them personally, then the policies that all of us need will never follow. So that's my focus. We have to build more political support. We have to bring more people into this conversation, show them the direct connections to climate change in their lives and in their communities, and I have a number of different ways that I think we can do that. But we are not there yet on the political support mm -hmm. for national climate policies in this country. We're there in a few states. We've been able to pass some state policies in California and other places, but we are not yet there. And so I think a lot of people are wondering why we haven't been able to pass some of these federal climate policies that we've been talking about for such a long time. If you look at the polling, it paints a pretty clear picture. We have not yet done enough to build that political support outside of our own base who already cares about climate change. 100%. I think that is the challenge and where the energy needs to be focused moving forward is making this a more inclusive and encompassing issue as opposed to one that stratifies large portions of society. You mentioned that you do have strategies on how to bring in these people who don't necessarily feel that climate change is impacting their local community. Before we dive into those strategies, I just want to quickly reference your recent article in The Hill, which was titled, Look Local for Climate Solutions, where you write that cities account for more than 70% of global carbon pollution and consume most of the world's energy supply, but less than half of all U.S. cities 
have greenhouse gas targets. And again, I feel like this ties into the localized approach because right now a lot of the conversation is centered on what actions are occurring at the federal level. And I don't hear much about what actions are being implemented at the local state and city level. If you could, one, provide insight into a few strategies that you feel could bring in people regardless of their party affiliation, and to talk a bit about how we can galvanize local support. Absolutely. So when something like the recent Supreme Court decision happens, where a major environmental initiative that a Democratic president is trying to move forward gets struck down for whatever reason, there are a series of articles, you know, many different articles that pop up all over the country about how the climate agenda has been throttled. You know, it's been chilled. It's been dealt a serious blow. I saw this constantly under the Obama administration. We're seeing it now under the Biden administration, where this one decision is the death blow to the U.S. climate agenda. We're never going to achieve our goals because of this one decision. And that is partly why I created my Climate Explainer account. And I'm trying so hard to bring a different take on this story because it's just flatly not true. And there are many reasons why you know any one thing is never going to be the final nail on the coffin to our ability to fight climate change. That is just not an accurate portrayal of how public policy works across the board on so many different levels. But it's also, I think, a overemphasis on Congress. And we need Congress to do something. We need them to do their job. We need them to pass more federal climate policies. But in the vacuum of Congress not doing that, things have really shifted to the states. And like you said, you know, the majority of people live in urban areas, you know, 83%, I believe, in, in the United States now live in urban areas. More people are moving to urban areas across the world as well. I mean, cities and states are where people live. And so even if we can't pass federal climate policy, we can pass state and local policies where people actually live, where they're feeling the impacts of climate change and not just talking about it at this tip of the spear in Washington, D.C. They're seeing it in their communities. I just got back from three weeks on a Western road trip where I was in Southern Utah and Northern Arizona. And we drove across the Mojave Desert to Southern California and spent some time in Nevada. And I saw three separate forest fires during that trip. Wow. I saw incredible, you know, historic droughts. There, I believe we're in a drought now since it's gone on 20 years in the Western United States. It's the biggest drought that we've had in over a thousand years. I was at Lake Powell in Arizona seeing the water levels that have been dropping rapidly 50 feet in the last year, 140 feet since 2000. I mean, you see it when you go out to the West. You see climate change, you see fire, you see drought conditions everywhere you go. But it's not just the West. I'm from the Midwest. I grew up in Indiana and Illinois. Historic flooding some years with droughts and other years have wreaked havoc on farmers. 
and their ability to yield the same amount from their crops. You know, in the Mid-Atlantic, so getting to to my op-ed in the Hill that you mentioned, D.C. is incredibly vulnerable to climate change, to flooding and rising sea levels. A lot of people who live in D.C., I don't think they know that. This city of, of mostly Democrats, which has very good climate policies for 2030 and decarbonizing by 2050. I mean, D.C. has passed more climate policies, arguably, than many other cities in the United States, but it still hasn't done enough. There is a huge disconnect between where people live in D.C. There is a heat island effect in many areas and neighborhoods of D.C. where people are threatened by deadly heat waves now every summer. And depending on your socioeconomic status or or your race, you could die at a much greater percentage living just in a different neighborhood in D.C. than, than another neighborhood. That's awful. And this isn't a situation that's unique to D.C. And so there's this new IPCC report that came out that really spurred me writing this piece that talked about human vulnerability to climate change, everything that we've just been talking about. And this new IPCC report found that while many cities have developed these adaptation plans, very few have been implemented to the extent that they need to be to really create a climate resilient place to live in the world. This is across the entire world. We really don't have any examples across the entire world at this point of a 100% climate resilient place to live. And that we need to solve that. We need to make sure 100% of where people live are 100% climate resilient. But these adaptation gaps exist in every city in the United States, every city across the world. And so I was really showing that disconnect in Washington, D.C. itself. Very interesting. Do you have any closing thoughts that you would like to share? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, getting back to your question about what else we can do to reframe our climate conversation. So I talked a lot about rejecting world is burning narratives, providing a hopeful vision for the future to counteract the apathy. Apathy is the worst expression of political engagement in this country. And the more apathetic you get, the less engaged you are. And that hurts our politics, that hurts our elections, that hurts our ability to create the policies that all of us need. It creates a negative ecosystem that makes everybody believe that there's nothing we can do. And there is really no good outcome for so many people believing so strongly that the world is on fire and there's nothing we can do. But I also really believe we have to reach out this half of the country that can't see climate change in their lives and -hmm. communities and figure out a way to connect with them more directly. And again, if you think about the images and climate activism that have dominated over the last couple of decades, the image of the polar bear, the image of melting glaciers thousands of miles away that most people will never see in their lifetime. What does a Midwestern farmer care about polar bears and melting glaciers. Mm-hmm. I care about those things. I work in conservation. I deeply care about the plight of natural ecosystems, the plight of biodiversity and individual species. But nature-based messages don't work 
with everyone. And we have to understand that and we have to create different messages that are more human centric, that really show people that we are truly in a human crisis and not just in a climate crisis. And so the number one thing that I think people can do to really connect with that is to ask themselves and ask those around them, what does climate change personally mean to you? You know, this is all issue advocacy 101. It's connecting yourself, connecting your community, connecting the people you know to the story of your own life and to, you know, showing that connection to the issue itself. What is the story that you can tell about your connection to the warming world around you? And I can tell that story. You know, I, I went down to Waveland, Mississippi after Hurricane Katrina and saw the destruction of a major hurricane, one of the most deadly and destructive hurricanes in U.S. history. I saw that for myself firsthand when I was 21 years old, and that changed the trajectory of my life. And I have seen melting glaciers and many other things since then, but everybody has a story that they can tell about their personal connection to the warming world around them at this point. It's a different story for everyone. Everybody cares about different things in their lives, but everybody has that story. And building those human connections, those personal connections to this issue, I think will make all the difference in improving the political support for this issue. More people will see it in their own self-interest to get involved and will really be able to, to move the needle on this. And I have I have a lot more suggestions that I make in my talks as well. Which will be linked in the show notes when it comes out. We'll link the article, the TED Talk, the Pew study, and all of the other great resources that you alluded to in this conversation. Thank you so much, Will. You're very welcome. Thanks so much for having me on. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Check out the episode description or show notes for more information on our guest. See you next time.